Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to the Writer's Room Podcast. This is episode eight of season one. My name is Valerie Francis. I am a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. This week, we're studying the hero at the mercy of the villain scene from Paula Hawkins' novel, the girl on the train. Now we're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the basic building blocks of stories. So if you can write a scene that works, you can write a story that works. Alrighty, now we did cover the girl on the train in the Roundtable podcast. So if you want more information about this story, uh, you can go check out that episode and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Uh, the girl on the train is a psychological thriller and I'll give you a brief overview of the three-act summary just to reori reorient you to the story. Now, in full disclosure, this is from the film because Leslie and I just spent the past week in really intense uh, training with Sean and Tim and some other StoryGrid editors. So I just didn't get a chance to reread the novel. So I sort of cribbed my notes from the Roundtable podcast. <laughs> All right. So the beginning hook. When Megan Hipwell goes missing, Rachel Watson must decide whether she should try and help the investigation by telling authorities that she saw Megan with another man. Or stay silent and possibly put Megan in further jeopardy or let a crime go unsolved. She decides to tell the police but is discredited and learns that she is a possible suspect. In the middle build, when Rachel insinuates herself into the investigation concerning Megan's disappearance, she becomes more unsure of her own state of mind. However, when Martha tells Rachel that she didn't do the violent, abusive things that Tom told her she'd done, her memories begin to reappear. She must decide whether to go to the police, leave the situation alone, or to go to Anna, Tom's new wife, and try to save both her and the baby. She goes to Anna to try and save her and the baby. In the ending payoff, when Tom comes home to find Rachel with Anna, Rachel must decide whether to confront Tom or leave without him knowing that she has learned the truth. She decides to confront him, becomes trapped in the house, and must fight for her life. In a desperate attempt to escape, she stabs Tom in the throat. It's a pretty gruesome scene, actually. <laughs> but uh, it's Anna who delivers the final blow and kills him. Both Anna and Rachel are cleared of charges, and Rachel's finally able to go on with her life. Now, this is an important point. Yes, I've just read that from the film. The novel, this, this particular scene that we're going to study today follows 
pretty close. The film version follows pretty closely to the novel, but there are some key differences. Notably, Anna doesn't deliver the final blow. Uh, so read the book, read the book. It's so good. Come on. So the scene, the, the hat mob scene or here at the mercy of the villain scene begins. Uh, if you've not read the girl on the train, then there are no chapters in the book. It goes by point of view back and forth from uh, Megan to Rachel to Anna. So the scene that we're looking at today starts on Sunday, August 18th from Rachel's point of view. And it starts with the line, I'm not really sure what to do. So I just ring the doorbell. And it goes over into Anna's point of view twice, back into Rachel's point of view. I'm excluding the two segments from Megan's point of view. Alrighty, that's a lot. Leslie, let's jump into the scene type here. Do you wanna kick us off? Yes, so the editor scene type is this, you know, what function is this scene serving in the, in the story? This is the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. This is the core event of a thriller, and it's the one that the reader is waiting for, so no pressure. <laughs> and in The Girl on the Train, the whole book really does build to this point, this showdown between Rachel and Tom. Now, a side note here, of course, as you know, thrillers are a mixture of action, crime, and horror. So there is a crime here, which is the death of Megan Hipwell, and we're trying to figure out who done it. It's pretty easy to guess in this book, simply because there aren't many options. And before we recorded, I was saying to Leslie that this is when the, the, the light bulb went on for me about why Agatha Christie has so many characters in her books. It's so that you have three or four or five possible suspects. Any one of these people really could have done it. They all had motive. They all have opportunity and all that good stuff. Here, there's not that many people it could be, and you start to weed them out pretty quickly. But that's not really a huge criticism of the book because you're still even – because here's what happened. You figure out – Okay, spoiler alert. You figure out that it's Tom pretty quickly. And that what that does is serve, it, it flips you into dramatic irony because you kind of figure it out before Rachel does. So it, I don't know if that was Paula Hawkins' intent or not, but it still works because you're becoming more anxious because Rachel still loves Tom and she still wants to be with him. But you as the reader have figured out that, Tom's the murderer. Like Rachel is already messed up enough because of this dude. We're yelling at her to get away from him. We're also desperately hoping Anna will take the baby to safety. So whether that was Paula Hawkins intent or not, I don't know, but it still works really well in my opinion. So the writer scene type, uh, Leslie, I'm kind of having fun naming these, to be honest. <laughs> I'm calling it a psychological tug of war because We've got Tom on one side and Rachel on the other side, tugging at Anna back and forth. Now, this is something that's interesting, and I'll, I'll get to this more in a minute, but Rachel's our protagonist in this novel. This is the hero at the mercy of the villain scene, primarily from Rachel's point of view, but we're really focused on Anna here. So Anna's in the middle, and they're tugging back and forth. Which side is Anna going to go to? Is she going to go with Rachel and 
bring her baby to safety and confront her husband? Or is she going to go with her husband and, and delude herself? Cause she's not exactly um, squeaky clean. She is a morally flexible person <laughs> as Saul Goodman says. So we don't know which way she's going to go. So that's why I'm calling it a, a psychological tug of war because they're, they're not physically pulling her back and forth, but they're playing with her thoughts. What, what do you think of that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, because in a way, at least in this portion of the book, Anna is the MacGuffin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The only way for Tom or Rachel to win is, for, is to win over Anna. And so... I think that's a beautiful way to understand what's happening in the scene. So while Rachel and Tom are acting, Anna is kind of in limbo and we're never sure what she's going to do until the end. So it, even though Rachel does act to get them all out of the (laughs) mercy of the villain, Anna's choice is just as important. It's interesting here. We've done a lot of two-person scenes. Here we've got a three-person scene. Well, technically there's four. There's Evie, the baby. Um, and, and she certainly has a voice <laughs> in this. Uh, she can pick up on the tension. She is like a, a, a metric, um, a way for us to see that the tension in the scene is rising because she can feel it, that things are getting more dangerous. And she's adding to it. And her mere presence raises our fears because she's a baby. She's an innocent and we're frightened to death. When Tom picks her up, our anxiety becomes so high because we don't believe that even though Tom is her father, we don't believe he's not going to harm her. So it's pretty scary. Any stories that have children at risk freak me out. I have to... I have to admit, I don't like reading those at all. And when I get to scenes like this where a child is at risk, it, the tension just goes to 11 instantly. And Paula Hawkins is playing with that, right? I mean, there are too many progressive complications in this scene for me to go through. That They'll all be in the show notes. But one of the things that Paula Hawkins does is play with that. Tom will have the baby and we're like freaking out. Then... Uh, Anna will have the baby again and we can we can get a little breath of air because even though Anna's morally flexible, she's always been a good mom. We we know that Evie is safe as long as she is with Anna. She's not necessarily safe with Rachel because Rachel has tried to kidnap her. <laughs> and Rachel is an alcoholic and for most of the story is not in control of herself. So if a drunk Rachel has Evie, she's not safe. But when she's with her mom, we know she's safe. So Hawkins is playing with this back and forth, and it's one of the things that she does to raise the stakes and escalate the tension. But having this three-person scene really speaks to the point of conflict and the point of power in the scene. Leslie, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So initially, of course, we just have Rachel and... Anna, and of course, Evie, Evie's always there, but Rachel is trying to prevail upon and like convince her, enlighten her, like you are not safe. I am here risking my freedom Mm -hmm. 
because it's important because I truly believe you are in danger. And Rachel or an Anna is kind of like, she's willing to right? She's morally flexible. She, she is trying to deny the truth that she actually knows. There's a part of her that knows what Tom did to Megan. And she's trying to push it aside. And here's Rachel just bringing it up, you know, in your face, Anna. Hope you, hope you don't mind. I'm going to give you a big dose of the truth. She does not want that. So that's the initial um, point of conflict. Now, when Tom arrives, that just, that increases the stakes, obviously, because then Anna needs to wise up in time to not jeopardize everybody. And it's really, it's really a problem. And Tom, of course, what he wants is to just shut these women up, get these women to behave themselves and act appropriately. And it's infuriating, of course. <laughs> um, but like, that's that whole, like he just, he wants control and Every time, you know, you can tell, you can watch, he is also a kind of barometer of what's going on in the scene. When he's calm, he feels in control, then he's on top, right? When he doesn't feel on top, things get really dangerous. It's really interesting to me that this scene is also. Rachel's redemption. It's not a redemption story, not really. And Rachel was never really a bad person. She was believing that she was a horrible person and she was doing horrible things because that's what Tom was telling her. She's a troubled person. She's an abused woman. She is an alcoholic who believes the worst about herself because the, the man she loves most in the world has told her that. And she still loves him. Anna still loves him. But she's also disgusted by him. And her moral compass is so strong that she puts herself at risk to save two other people. Yes, one is an innocent child. And we now then understand why Rachel tried to kidnap the child. That was her inner compass. I mean, yes, there's a whole issue about Rachel wanting to have children and not being able to have children. And it is easy to, because Hawkins is very skilled, we're led to believe that this is a defect in Rachel that because she can't have a biological child of her own, she'll steal someone else's child. By the end of the book, we realize that this is Rachel's moral compass coming up to save an innocent child from someone she knows is not safe. So she's, she goes to save Evie, but she also goes to save Anna. And Anna has, they're not exactly best buds. They hate each other. But Rachel understands that Anna is in the same abusive relationship that she had been in. And so she wants to, to save her. So it's a, it's a beautiful scene and it works 
really well. Uh, Leslie, um, let's, why don't, why don't we just go right into the, uh, the four scene analysis questions? Okay. So our first question is about what's literally happening. What are the characters literally doing? And here we have a two person and then three person conversation. It's happening in and around Anna and Tom's house, right? Nothing uh, very upsetting there. Of course, it devolves into an attack. Then we ask, what is the essential tactic of the characters? So the essentially the macro behaviors, what, what beliefs are they acting upon? And here, Rachel, of course, wants to convince Anna of the truth about Tom and convince her to get to safety. Anna wants to ignore the truth. She's willing to let things go until she realizes that she and Evie will never be safe. And of course, Tom wants to maintain control of the situation. So as Rachel concludes, he's lying to himself as much as he is to everyone else. And in his mind, these women are causing him big, big problems, and he just wants them to behave. And of course, we also know Rachel cannot be allowed to live because she knows the truth and isn't willing, Tom knows, she isn't willing to ignore it. So then we look at the universal human values. So essentially, what has changed in this scene? Where are we moving? Of course, there is a lot going on here. Um, and I recommend, especially if you're doing a psychological thriller, I really recommend looking at the micro changes that are happening over these passages. The micro work here is excellent. But for our purposes of basic seed analysis, we're going to focus on the global value spectrum. That's life. So we've got on the far negative end, what we call the negation of the negation, we've got damnation. We've got death, the negative value, and the positive value is life. So that's, those are the values we should track. And Tom is moving from life to death for which I think we are relieved. Um, Anna moves from her life-threatened to safe, and Rachel moves from life-threatened to life, um, which is a slightly different, um, obviously, description, but it's, um, to me, she is, by making the sacrifice, she is, that is a kind of, it's not a redemption story, as you said, Valerie, but she is um, she's increasing agency within the world, as Sean would say. And as a result, she's really boosting life in general. She's not just moving to safety. So finally, we sum all of this up in the story event. And here's what I have. Rachel goes to Anna's home to try to enlighten her to the truth about Tom and get Anna and Evie to escape to safety. But Tom shows up. He attacks Rachel, who musters the courage to release her shadow agent to save herself, Anna, and Evie. 
and of course, any other woman who might have come into contact with Tom in the future. Now that's really a long story event. Um, you could, I think, trim it if you spent a little more time on it, but those are the basics of what's the action, the point of conflict, and the change happening in the scene. And of course, these questions are all helping you to fill in your spreadsheet. So there's a, a column on the spreadsheet for story event. And really, unless you're planning to submit to StoryGrid Publishing, no one sees your spreadsheet but you. So your story event can be as long as you need it to be. You may only need a half dozen words to remind you what that scene is and what it's about, or you may need a more of a paragraph to make sure you're tying up a bunch of loose ends and, and so forth. So this is for you. So it's not about getting an A in story grid. As we always say, it's about creating a tool that is helpful for you to write your story. All righty, five commandments. Inciting incident. Rachel arrives at Anna's house and tells Anna that they have to leave. The turning point. Anna tells Tom that she found the phone he used to call Megan. Now, there's so much going on in this scene. The if you want to see beats at play, this is a great scene to study because you'll see lots of turning points and you'll wonder, why did Valerie pick that one? Why didn't she pick, you know, there's a half dozen before that point. Well, yeah, there are. But those are beat level turning points, what I'm calling beat level turning points. And one of the questions Leslie had for me when we were preparing for this is, are you calling this a scene or is this a sequence? I'm calling it a scene because it's one movement of the story. It's all the hero at the mercy of the villain. But it goes on for quite some time. And I'll talk about that uh, in a minute. So I think that Anna telling Tom that she found the phone is the turning point because now this is when things have changed. Until this point, yes, Tom has come home, but he has come home before and found Rachel at his house. The power dynamic hasn't shifted. Life for them hasn't shifted. Rachel is still the crazy ex-wife that they're trying to get rid of. What changes is Anna saying, I know you're, you had an affair with Megan. Now things are different. The whole, the whole, like the air changes in the room. You can feel it just as you're reading the book. So that's why I call that the turning point. The crisis then becomes Anna's, which is really interesting in the Hero at the Mercy of the Villain scene, because you would think that it would be the heroes, like logically, if you're just thinking through this. But because I think this is a tug of war scene, and as Leslie said, Anna is the MacGuffin, who is she going to go with? This is why I think um, Anna's the one with the crisis here. And it's, will she side with uh, Tom or with Rachel? Takes us forever to find out what she's going to do. And eventually she sides with Rachel and the resolution, Anna calls the police and Rachel kills Tom in self-defense. All right. Now we, we are at last getting into the main <laughs> conversation about what this what this scene is so amazing for. And there's so many different things. Leslie, do you want to kick us off with a discussion of globally of the scene, what's in the scene and why, why we picked it to study? Right. So 
it's really interesting, of course, you've already talked about the that we are seeing the scene from different perspectives. So that is altering the narrative drive because at times we can see inside, you know, what's going on for Anna. So, and of course, obviously we sometimes see what's going on for Rachel. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about the point of view differences is that, you know, this would be what we'd call a classic example of an unreliable narrator, right? Because Rachel, we doubt Rachel's sanity, her grip on, on reality um, during the story. And, you know, that is, that's an interesting point. It's part of the psychological thriller. Honestly, I think it's part of every thriller that there's a point where the protagonist doubts whether they are seeing things the way they are, you know, reality, because the forces of antagonism are so complex and hard to pin down. So, the thing about unreliable narrators, though, is that any first-person narrator is unreliable to the extent that they are trying to get what they want, right? They are, everybody's got an angle, right? And maybe it's <laughs> a good right. angle, right? Like here, Rachel, she's risking her life and her, well, first her freedom, and then her life to help someone else get out of a situation. She is at all costs trying to get the truth out. And so she's going to present the story in a way that, you know, within the scene, of course, she's presenting the story in a way to get Anna to take action. Now, if we pull back, the story is being presented by someone who has an angle. And so everybody, every narrator is unreliable to a certain extent because they are trying to achieve something. Now, that doesn't mean they're lying, but it, it does change the way that we think about the narrator and what the details we choose to, as the writer, to reveal there. So I think it's really important to have that in mind and, and that there's not a small class of unreliable narrators. Every narrator is actually a little unreliable. And we have three narrators in this novel, Anna, Megan, and Rachel, Rachel's obviously the main protagonist here. They're all in first person. So tying into what you said about narrative drive, the reader is constantly wondering what the truth is. Because it's, we know none of them is telling the objective truth. They're telling their version of events. So the truth is somewhere in between this triangle of Rachel, Megan, and Anna, and who is in the middle of that triangle but Tom. That's who, that's who, I mean, he has his tentacles in everybody, and we don't hear his point of view at all. We really don't get much of him. And this is one of the, this is one of the flags, right? Whenever you have a, in a crime story, 
<laughs> okay, in case you didn't already pick this up on your own, <laughs> it's important for you to know as a writer so that you can avoid it. Whenever a character seems too good to be true, they're usually who done it. And I think of, oh, I'm not going to say, I was going to name a show where I guessed who done it. Um, for this very reason, I'm not going to mention it in case you haven't seen it because I don't want because it's such a good show. I don't want you to not watch it just for that because the acting, the two lead actors are amazing. So uh, that was quite a bit of restraint I just showed. So I would like to <laughs> the floor to acknowledge. <laughs> acknowledge. <laughs> um, but anyway, all this to say that you know, Leslie's been, point, been studying point of view. I've been studying narrative drive. And here in this novel, the two are coming together because the point of view is part of what's causing this narrative drive. And narrative drive is not a storytelling principle in and of itself. It's the effect of the other principles working together. And in this case, the point of view is a huge driver of the narrative drive. So it's very cool, super cool. You know, and... Like, who do, you, who do you believe? Where is the truth in this? That's the central dramatic question here. And yes, it's whether Rachel is sane or not sane. Absolutely. But also, where's the truth? Because pretty soon we, we start to see that, yeah, she's troubled. And she's got a lot of issues she's dealing with. But that doesn't mean she's insane. Um, the other Big thing for me, Leslie, um, tell me what you think of this. A, a reason for us to study this is that this scene is super long. And there's a question as to whether it's a sequence or a scene. So why don't you tell me why you thought this was a sequence? Why you asked me that question? Yeah, so there are, we've got these units that serve as you know they're either beats or individual scenes right it's the the writer has broken up the the sequence of events that begin in the morning and end in the evening of one day and of course there are a couple of interludes there too that we're for the sake of simplicity if you can believe it uh, we are we are avoiding for, for this discussion. There are, there are perceivable shifts within those moments. But as, as Valerie says, Anna never commits until the end, right? So we don't have that full shift. It is not decided. The central question that we're facing in this in these passages is what is Anna going to do, right? We do need to know what Rachel's going to do. And that is really important, right? There is no, it doesn't, it won't matter what Anna does if Rachel doesn't do what she does. These women are, are, you know, as you say, the three women are completely tied together. Megan's the true story about what happened to Megan is not coming out if Rachel and Anna don't get their act together and do the right thing. And for Anna, that means 
facing the truth and accepting it and acting accordingly. And for Rachel, it is releasing her shadow and defeating that <laughs> man. So um, <laughs> Tom is a really bad egg. So that it does these individual units and they are worthy of study because they're just beautiful. Um, the, that last one, that last segment from Rachel's point of view, when Rachel is waking up and she's, um, Tom is explaining why everything is her fault. Right. Um, and he does like, we see all of his tactics, all of his usual tactics are on display here, right? He blames her and he helps her up, right? He pushes himself against her, you know, and then he smiles at her, you know, like he is pulling out all the stops here because he knows he has to kill her. If he's going to survive, he cannot. It's, you know, we are at the end of the line. So there are these shifts, but the central question, as I said, doesn't get decided until the very end. And so it is appropriate. You could call it a sequence, but in reality, I think a scene is probably more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. That, and especially since well, because it is one unit of story. And even in the film, it, it follows this pretty closely. And it's, it's clearly a scene. So if you're, if you're reading this and struggling, watch the film because chances are you're just more used to seeing scenes in a film. So it might become clearer to you why we're calling this a scene as opposed to a sequence. Uh, let's see, what else do I have here? Oh, yeah, so here's something that's interesting. In the book that I have, this version here, it's the one that says, uh, you know, soon to be a major motion picture, blah, blah, on the cover. Um, this scene is 41 pages. 23 of those pages, more than half, are from points of view other than the protagonists which is really interesting. I had to count it up because there was so much, so many other, so much of the time was other voices that are coloring the action on the stage. The camera's on Rachel, then it's on Anna. And then I think in the film, if memory serves, the Megan parts have a voiceover. Uh, and voiceover is not something that we can do in a novel. So it was really interesting to me to see how the novel translated to the screen there. And that's something we started to get into a little bit in the round table. And this is another instance where if you're writing with the idea that you want to see your novel become a film someday, here's, here's the difference in the, in the two different forms of storytelling and why things need to change and how they can change. So I think this is a really advanced storytelling technique, Leslie. You've got the core scene. It's the core event of the novel. The whole book has been building up to this scene. She stretches it over 41 page and keeps breaking it up. That's some fancy footwork. Now, 
this, this book keeps getting touted as her debut novel. It isn't. I think this is her fifth book. It's her first thriller, but I think it's her fifth book. And she was a journalist for years before that. So she came to this novel with a really solid base in storytelling and what makes a story interesting to a reader. She may or may not have ever heard of StoryGrid. I don't know. But she has implicitly absorbed these principles of storytelling and has put them into practice here in The Girl on the Train. Because, I mean, I don't know if I could pull it off, flipping in the hero at the mercy of the villain scene to another point of view and then doing two flashbacks. So... Here's, you know, it's just another reason to study this scene and challenge yourself to write a scene like it if you don't believe that it's challenging <laughs> and, and give it to someone to read and see if you can maintain their interest through it because it's, it's really well done. Gold star to, to Paula Hawkins. Absolutely. I'm just scanning my notes here to see what else I have to mention um, before we cool up the story, the, the episode. Oh yeah, this scene is the resolution of the whole book. That's the other thing. We, we typically see this scene as part of the resolution, part of the, the third act, but here it's kind of serving as the majority of the ending payoff. There's only, um, in my version, um, two or three pages after this, and then the book is done. And it's basically, and they all lived happily after, the end. <laughs> well, <laughs> happily ever after might be a stretch. <laughs> well, well, and Rachel lived sanely ever after. How's that? <laughs> Again, you know. It's, she is sane. It's a, She's sane. It's, she is it's on a, the road to recovery. We know that there is a positive, bright future ahead of her. A much more positive future. Yes, yes. She's Sorry. out of the deep end, at the side of the pool now, out of the pool, uh, in safety. All right. To wind up the episode, as always, we like to talk about our key takeaways. So, Leslie, what's your, if you have to boil it down to one, what's your key takeaway for uh, the Here at the Mercy of the Villain scene from The Girl on the Train? It is so hard to boil it down to one because there's so many good things in this. but. What I will say is this emphasizes the importance of slowing down and studying your masterwork carefully. Read it closely. Reread it multiple times. The things that make this scene appear great, you could conclude that it's the stuff that's happening on the surface, but I promise you when you get into the layers beneath the surface, you'll see what's really driving the emotions that the reader feels and that's all happening under the surface. So it's kind of like walking down the street versus driving. When you go slowly, you notice the details. Now you don't have to do that with every story that you read, please, please, please take the time to do it for your masterwork. It will pay huge dividends. For me, the key takeaway, yet again, I'm feeling a bit like a broken record, is, that, is this. When you know what the storytelling tools are in your writer's toolbox, what they are and how they work, you can really make them sing. You can, 
the question we get is, can we do this? Or can we do that in the scene? Or what is supposed to happen here? Okay, that's the wrong question to ask. The question you want to ask yourself is, how do I make this happen to best effect? Which tool in my writer's toolbox is going to help me tell this story the best way that I can? And the only way to answer that question is by knowing what the tools in the toolbox are and how they work, what they do well, what they don't do well. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.